at the end of my shift, you have patient hold your hands and tell you thank you for everything you have done. My name is Romel Tater. I work at Left Span at the Marriott Hospital. I've been here 20 plus years. Well, we have increased patient load, we have nursing shortage, so it's been tough. And we just want nurses out there to know it's a nice place to work. We have a lot of support. So if they want to join in, we are here to help them navigate that. Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Back in the 80s, as Rhode Island's first female attorney general, Arlene Violet was nicknamed Attila the Nun. The former Sister of Mercy took no mercy on the mob. How would you apply the lessons from that fight to these? With extreme difficulty, because back in the day, people did have a sense of right and wrong. I could do other occupations, like I have, you know, I have other skills, but I find that when I take a day off, what do I, I want to do? I want to make art. I want to go see music. I want to play music. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. I'm Michelle San Miguel. The Christian Science Monitor once observed that she looked like a nun, which she was, and she talked like a crusading prosecutor, which she also was. We're talking about none other than Arlene Violet. In Rhode Island politics, she was a pioneer and a force of nature, taking on public corruption as the state's first female attorney general. She ran as a Republican. Arlene Violet still puts her values front and center, urging all of us to do better. Back in November, she sat down for a conversation with contributing reporter David Wright. She's a Rhode Island icon. Tonight I am announcing that I am going to be your candidate for Attorney General. A voice of conscience in Rhode Island politics. The fact of the matter is both the Republicans and the Democrats have done nothing about this because they are in the midst a big business. Arlene Violet is no shrinking Violet. I'm incorrigible. <laughs> Back in the day, they called her Attila the Nun, and at age 78, she hasn't given up the fight. But I want to encourage my sisters and brothers that still are tilting at windmills to continue to tilt at them because there's a role to play to try to bring us back to our sensibilities, if not morally, at least as a nation, where we purport to have these principles that are supposed to govern us. She got that fighting spirit at an early age in Newport, not far from the Gilded Age mansions on the campus of Salve Regina. Founded by the Sisters of Mercy, it was originally a women's college chartered to promote virtue, piety, and learning. So you entered the convent in 1960? 61. All at yes. 18 years old. Yes. I thought, of course, I would get kicked out because I <laughs> sort of, was sort of wild when I was in high school. Arlene Violet did not get kicked out. She graduated and took her vows. Catholic nuns all take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. The Sisters of Mercy take a fourth vow, service. I just took to it, and of course, the order talked about responding to the unmet need, and what made something unmet was nobody had done it yet. So in many ways, it sounds stupid, but the convent turned me into a feminist 
because they would actually uh, have you encouraged to try things that no one had tried before. Unmet needs in the 1960s included the fight for civil rights, farm workers' rights, and protesting the Vietnam War. Is it true you used to go to anti-war rallies in your nun's habit? I did, I did. Sometimes I wouldn't have one, but I'd borrow it from another nun from another order. Uh, to, uh, because it was important to me to show that the church was standing in solidarity uh, with the uh, protesters, the war protesters, and the also hippies. to stand in the hippies. <laughs> How did they respond to you? What did, uh, what, what did they make uh, of you? I, 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 fine, fine, I guess. Occasionally I got dragged into police stations with them. But in Rhode Island, particularly in Providence, uh, the police were mostly Catholic. So I was sort of an embarrassment for them. <laughs> Arlene Violet was one of the first nuns to move from the convent into the community, taking up residence in the old Hartford Avenue housing project. Most of her neighbors did not take vows of poverty, but they were stuck with it anyway. A lot of poor people there. And that experience showed me that uh, poor people are victims, victims, victims. So they were powerless. You know, the criminal justice system was re-victimizing them by giving them no voice. So seeing what was happening and you know, I just said, this is awful. So I probably have to become a lawyer, Don it. So it was at that point that you decided to go to law school? Well, I asked my superiors, of course, and they said, sure, if you get in, that's fine. She got in, went to Boston College Law School, and when she graduated, became a one-nun legal aid society. She saw firsthand how Rhode Island in those days was rigged, corruption rampant. It's none but a lot of hookwick that you people have been giving me for a long time. And I wish I wasn't on trial and get this case coming up. I'd like to talk to the United States of America. What's going on? Raymond Patriarca Sr. was the boss of the New England Mafia, holding court out of the Coinomat on Federal Hill in Providence. When I ran in 1982, he was outside uh, his shop and he was smoking a cigarette and had his white socks on. And I was walking by and he said, hi, sister. And I said, I'm no sister to you. <laughs> Bedeviled by legal problems and failing health, Patriarca's reign as the New England crime boss was already starting to crumble. And a large crowd of the curious gathered outside the courthouse to watch as Patriarca arrived. He looked terrible. Eyes closed, oxygen tubes in his nose, and intravenous medication being poured into him as he was carried up the steps of the building and into court. This 1981 news story shows him on a hospital gurney facing murder charges. Attorney John Cicilline told the court Patriarca pleads innocent on both counts. That same year, Arlene Violet made her first bid for public office. So I thought it was a nun-like thing to do to uh, run for attorney general at that point. But you didn't win. I did not win. Even though she ran as a novelty, raising awareness about issues that mattered, she had a strong enough showing to encourage her to run again. When you finally won, you were faced with a choice. Yes. A little bit before I won, I guess the polls were coming out to show that uh, I could win, uh, and the bishop gave me a choice of uh, I could either stay a Sister of Mercy or I could continue to run in office. It was tough for me because I had been a nun at that point for 23 years, uh, loved it, uh, but to me it was a choice between the reality of the commitment, which was respond to unmet needs, or I could keep the title of being a nun, but not keep the reality of what that commitment was. Right. So that's how I decided.
1984, the year she took office. And now, from southeastern New England's leading news station, News Watch 10, with Doug White and Larry Estepa. Good evening. Raymond Patriarca, the kingpin of organized crime in New England, is dead at the age of 76. Patriarca Sr. died, but his criminal empire survived. One of the first things I did when I became attorney general uh, was tell the prosecutors they couldn't go to mob restaurants because they would go after work and they'd have the tab uh, for their drinks and or their meals picked up. So uh -huh. I threatened, I said, look, you're going to lose your job. I'm telling you right now, uh, you can't do that. Uh, how can the public have any confidence that you're going to prosecute these guys when they're paying for your drinks at night? So that led the General Assembly to want to impeach me like a month or so after I was in office. The problem wasn't just the mafia, but the corruption they spawned, as she later told C-SPAN. Sometimes people think mob guys are dem D's and does kind of guys. That's not true at all. Uh, they have people who are incredibly intelligent. They pulled some scams, for example, on Wall Street that would make Bernie Madoff look like a piker. She took on the mob and the drug cartels. So along comes Sister Arlene, uh, Attorney General Arlene at this yeah, point. Yeah. No longer Sister Arlene. Yeah. Were you scared? Uh, no. Uh, I, I don't get scared. I, I think that's the Sister of Mercy thing. Do you think your life was really in danger? I don't know. I, uh, it's not anything I dwell on. You know, they told me it was. I just think if people are going to get you, they're going to get you one way or the other, with or without a bodyguard. So I just thought it was a waste of taxpayer money. I mean, it's incredibly brave. I don't standing know. up to the mob, the drug cartels. Well, that's what the job was, right? If you run to do a job, you should do it. We want the money! She also sounded the alarm about Rhode Island's banking system, then on the brink of collapse because of corruption and mismanagement. And she famously reopened the Klaus von Bülow case, the murder trial that inspired the movie Reversal of Fortune. But isn't the truth the simplest way, Alan? I mean, why did I stay all day at Sonny's side without calling a doctor? She lost that case and eventually lost her job as attorney general and went on to write books and even a musical about the mob, The Family. Family values are heaven's design. Family values keep you in line. You wrote a musical. Yeah. I sound like I can't keep a job. I just keep doing all these other things. But, <laughs> yeah. Think of it this way, though. If the mob can be fodder for musical theater, that's one sign it's no longer quite as scary as it once was. When you started tilting at this particular windmill, the mafia in Rhode Island must have seemed an insurmountable problem. And looking around the landscape of today, there's no shortage of insurmountable problems. Yes. Climate change, guns, racism. Yeah. How would you apply the lessons from that fight to these? With extreme difficulty, because back in the day uh, when I was attorney general, people did have a sense of right and wrong. They did not baptize what they should not have. They could see that there was evil and they did want to get rid of it. They didn't condone public corruption. They knew it was wrong if people were self-dealing for themselves as a politician. Today, anything goes. The problem is that all facts are created equal somehow, including the myths 
uh, that exists. So I think it's infinitely more difficult uh, in this day and age because we can't even agree on basic facts. Does the law still work to protect the little guy? Thank God the law, it still exists, you know, and there is at least a bedrock of principles uh, that are based on what society should be and what is fair and just. So I, I credit law with at least being the last bastion of hope to try to do the right thing and to get justice. You have faith. I do have faith in the justice system. I really do. So far. So far. The former nun still has faith in the bigger sense, too, even though the church has disappointed her. Uh, the Catholic Church totally lost its way by defending the indefensible during the sex abuse issues involving priests. It's terrible uh, that uh, it's lost its way, and today it has no moral authority as far as I'm concerned. What worries you most looking around the world right now? Uh, the the um, division. We are, I, I really do believe, you know, people sometimes will say to me, what's your nationality? And I say, oh, you know, I'm Irish, I'm French, I'm Indian, I'm Italian, I'm, and I'm none of really all of that necessarily, but I, you have to start thinking that way. You know, just like I think that I'm black as well as uh, Asian and I'm white and I hate answering, you know, whether I'm a Caucasian or not. Uh, I, I'm, I'm heterosexual, I'm gay, I'm bi, I'm transgender. I, why are we making all these distinctions? It's crazy, and I, I just want, if I had any wish for the world, it would be that we'd stop doing this. Who cares? We're all, we're all equal. It's interesting because on the one hand, celebrating diversity yep. is, a, is an admirable value. But we don't believe it. <laughs> At the same time, yeah. it, it encourages tribalism, doesn't it? It encourages yes. us versus them. Yeah. This, yeah. Is, this is about me, this is about yeah. you. Yeah, except it shouldn't. It should be beautiful. It's like works of art, you know, or people who do tapestries or people who make clothes from different cultures. There should be a wow factor to it. That, that, that's wow. Look at that. I wouldn't, I'm, I'm so dull compared <laughs> to that, you know. Yeah. It's wow. Thank you for coloring up my world. Exactly. Kind of thing, but we don't do it. Life's too short for all these antagonisms, seems to me. It's What's a shame. the answer? I don't know what the answer is. You know, I wish, you know, I had this brain enough that I could figure that out, other than trying to call people back to what they're supposed to be. If you're a minister, for crying out loud, get back to what the gospel is supposed to be. At 78, Arlene Violet is not done tilting at windmills. She says she has no plans to retire. I think Rhode Island's better off if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of people would disagree with that sentiment, but thank you for saying it. <laughs> Our thanks to David Wright for that report. And now, contributing reporter Bill Bartholomew introduces us to a man who has been entertaining the eyes and ears of New England for almost 30 years, visual artist and musician Dan Blakesley. I don't cut corners, never have, never will. I'm just hoping that, that one day long after I'm gone that, the, that my, my, my artwork and music will, will still uh, continue to live. That pretty little heart you It was at the Canadian border back in For New England artist and musician Dan Blakesley, a passionate work ethic and self-starter mentality has been the key to his creative vitality. 
Blazing his own multi-platform trail through visual art and songwriting, Blakesley has established himself as a distinct character in New England and beyond, something he says can be traced to his childhood roots. South Berwick, Maine is where, where, uh, where I'm from. And, uh, and I, throughout my whole life, like I grew up in a house like it's very artful and uh, family, musical family. And I was kind of dabbling with both art and music growing up. His passion and skill landed Blakesley at the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore, where he realized that through developing a wide array of skills, he could produce a variety of content to help build the infrastructure for a successful artistic career. So this way, when I get out of art school, oh, and if I need to build a light box, hey, I can build it. You know, I, I, I took, uh, you know, carpentry or woodworking in art school. And if I need to photograph my work, I took uh, photography. And, but the thing that I gravitated most towards is drawing. And that's been with me my entire life because I feel like it's also something I can have on me at all times. Blakesley says art school was so intense that he needed to find an escape from the pressure. He found it in songwriting. My parents had got me a guitar when I was 18 and it was sitting in the corner of the room at, at art school and I'm like, one night I was doing like an overnight project and I'm like, I'm gonna lose my mind unless I do something else. So I started playing guitar and, uh, and then that sort of like sparked this big interest in, you know, playing music and didn't know that, that I'd be doing both as like a dual career the rest of my life. Ultimately, Blakesley recorded his first album in a basement in Baltimore before returning back home to Maine following his graduation. It's giving me chills thinking about it because like, I remember when I moved back home, man, look at that. It's authentic. <laughs> and I remember when I moved back home, I was like, all right, I did all this art work at art school. Now what am I gonna do? That's when he decided to make a critical decision which changed his life. Decided, I'm not going to make artwork for a year. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to do music only. So I, so I was working in a lobster restaurant and, uh, and working there for a few summers. And uh, so I started playing my gigs. And the thing is, when you play gigs, you got to make show posters. So I was still drawing, so I was drawing my show posters. And then I started playing some, some like art spaces and breweries and things like that. And, uh, and I was playing at the Portsmouth Brewery in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I've been playing there like the whole summer and they said, hey man, we, we like your posters. Would you ever want to make some beer labels? So I'm like, yes. Blinksley discovered that by working as a singer-songwriter, he was simultaneously expanding his opportunities and reach as a visual artist. Eventually, his boss at the lobster restaurant gave him an ultimatum. And he said, I can't hire you back. And I'm like, what? I said, I'm one of your best employees, and he knew that. But he said, and I had handed him my tape at the uh, end of the summer of the previous year, and he said, you're supposed to be out there playing music. He said to me, okay, here's the deal. Book as many shows as you can this summer, and you can work on the in-between days. And then, and then the next year you can't anymore. You have to be out there playing. He took his boss's orders to heart booking and performing shows as often as he could while creating a new poster for every gig. 
Later, he moved to Boston, where he set out to perform each and every day. Blakesley didn't care about the location. For him, it was all about the experience of creating live music. Like that I didn't have a gig above ground, I would be playing underground. And I feel like that really helped um, uh, broaden my reach because, you know, any, any random person walking down the subway that day, if they stumble across the music and they like it, you know, they might not have had that experience. How many years did that go on for, that process? I did that, I did that for like, uh, off and on for 20 years. I'm lonely in the dust upon your train. Over the following decades, Blakesley began to tour nationally, expanding his fan base on a nightly basis at events like the South by Southwest Festival in Austin. In 2017, he moved to Providence, joining a growing indie folk community that was largely based around the city's Columbus Theater, as well as the Newport Folk Festival. It happened pretty, pretty naturally and organic, and uh, I, I went to uh, my first ever Newport Folk Festival, and this is like probably like 11, 12 years ago, and I was so enamored at how down to earth everybody was. He became a popular member of the Folk Festival's undercurrent of buskers and unofficial performers, eventually being invited to deliver a sanctioned performance in 2019. In 2021, after a year hiatus due to the pandemic, Newport Folk returned, with Blakesley named the festival's official busker, which included delivering the event's first performance following the pandemic, something he says festival producer Jay Sweet conceived while sleeping. It was three days before the festival this year, and he said, I woke up from a dream last night and that you were the official busker for Newport Folk Festival. So what do you say? I'm like, yes, because for years I had always busked um, at the end of the festival while people are waiting to get the ferry, you know, and, and play until like everyone's gone and, and, uh, and it was so nice to be asked to be officially part of the festival. Blakesley has released 10 albums, including Christmas records and one under his annual Halloween alter ego, Dr. Gasp. He has sold countless pieces of art, including designing the iconic Boston Heart in the wake of the Boston Marathon bombings. But perhaps his most famous creation is a beer label. His drawing of famed microbrew Hetty Topper was ranked the top beer label in the country by USA Today. At the end of the day, it's hard to define Blakesley's career. So no surprise at the answer we got when we asked him which hat he prefers wearing, visual artist or musician? That's a big question because I feel like with me, um, from my experiences that I'm so passionate about both that I can't like, I mean, I could do other occupations. Like I have, you know, I have other skills, but I find that when I take a day off, what do I, what do I want to do? I want to make art. I want to go see music. I want to play music. 
Our thanks to Bill Bartholomew. Dan Blakesley will be giving a live musical performance later this week on Friday, March 25th at the Galactic Theater in Warren. And finally tonight, we bring you a short clip of a documentary by Rhode Island PBS producer and director Bria Medina. Black Joy explores the history, tradition, and legacy of joy in Rhode Island's black community. I went to Notre Dame, and like a lot of things that I've done in my life, I went to Notre Dame, I didn't even know they had a football team. I didn't even know there was a Golden Dome. To be brutally honest with you, that even my relationship to blackness and to understanding what the struggles of our people have been historically, um, that really became more of, uh, it became more crystallized for me during college. You know, there was a problem with black student retention. There was no center, no hub. There was no director of multicultural education. Nothing, nothing, nothing. There was no place to go. So it all led to, we staged a sit-in. It was the end of my junior year of college. We all met around campus, different satellite campus areas, and we walked toward the Golden Dome. We shut down the Golden Dome. We walked in, we had sleeping bags, food, music, black folk, white folk, all kind of folk, football players, everybody piling in. And we piled in, we shut the building down for a day after handing them our demands. And that began a discussion um, that I'm proud to this day to say that my brother went back to Notre Dame 10 years after I finished, and there was an Office of Multicultural Affairs. And oh, there were more black faculty and the, the climate was less hostile. But, you know, I was so tired after all of that. Um, I felt a little bit defeated because there was, really, there was really no outcome at that time. And so I'm like, well, the last thing I wanna do is mess up my GPA, so I'll take an acting class since I took my first acting class in my senior year of college and it changed my life. I didn't know that much about Providence or about the idea of making a life here. So once again, making a decision purely on my gut. And my gut was that I wanted to be part of a community. And you can see the full documentary, Black Joy, right here on Rhode Island PBS on March 27th at 7 p.m. That's our broadcast this evening. I'm Michelle San Miguel. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly, or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you for joining us. Good night.